Chapter 10 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 6, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 10. Fredericksburg. It was on a raw and gusty November day that General Buckingham arrived at Burnside's headquarters at the little village of Orleans, and delivered him the orders to take command of the Army of the Potomac. He was greatly surprised, he himself says shocked, at the news. He told General Buckingham that it was a matter which required very serious thought, that it had been offered to him twice before, and that he did not feel he could take it. He called two of his staff officers into consultation, and for more than an hour resisted their importunities that he should accept it. He told them, what in light of experience we know was true, that he was not competent to command such a large army. He had said as much to the President, and to the Secretary of War, when they on a former occasion had intimated to him that such a promotion was thought of. In the dissatisfaction prevailing in high quarters in Washington against McClellan, the name Burnside had been more than once mentioned, in the councils of the government, as his successor, a suggestion which Burnside had always discountenanced. He was an intimate and devoted friend of McClellan, and thought him better fitted than anyone else in the Army of the Potomac to command it. But now, forced to decide in one short hour of twilight, finding himself with no counsel but that of General Buckingham, who bore the orders and urged the wishes of the government, and of his staff, who were naturally rejoiced at his promotion, he was unable to persist in his refusal. He and General Buckingham started at once for McClellan's headquarters at Rectortown, and there, as a matter of course, the deposed general could say nothing more than that it was the duty of General Burnside to obey his orders, and that he congratulated him upon his good fortune. It would be hard to say to which of these commanders the messages of General Buckingham was of the more evil omen. The removal of McClellan was a blow to him, the bitterness of which was to last through his life. But there was reserved for General Burnside, as a consequence of his new honors, a day of disaster and gloom, which, to a man of his sensitive and kindly nature, must have been bitterer still. It can be safely said that from the hour when, in that blinding snowstorm, he accepted the command of the Army of the Potomac, to the hour when he laid it down in discouragement and despair, he did not see a single happy day. Yet even now it is difficult to say what better choice at that moment the government could have made. He was next in rank to the commanding general. Of McClellan's subordinates in the Army of the Potomac there were none who had as yet shown capacity for important, independent command, while Burnside had at least the prestige of a great success in North Carolina. He was highly esteemed in Army circles, and had made, like McClellan, a prosperous career for himself in civil life. He had hosts of friends, was manly, honorable, and chivalrous in character. He was as acceptable to the adherents of McClellan as any one could have been, and was as little objectionable to McClellan himself as was possible for his successor to be. They were up to that time close friends. The unkind criticisms of Burnside's conduct at Antietam, which McClellan afterwards embodied in his report, were reflections which had arisen long after the fight prompted by the instinct of self-preservation. To the ardent spirits in Congress, and in the press, 
who were urging a more vigorous prosecution of the war, Burnside was highly acceptable, and his appointment was greeted with great enthusiasm. Somewhat to Mr. Lincoln's chagrin, the first act of the new general was to object to the plan of campaign which had been furnished to McClellan from Washington. Instead of this, he proposed to transfer his army to Fredericksburg, and from that point to move upon Richmond. General Halleck went down to visit him, and a thorough discussion of the matter took place between them. Neither seemed inclined to yield his preferences, and Halleck went back to Washington to lay the matter before the President. He, having given his confidence, was not, at this early day, inclined to limit or withdraw it. He therefore assented to Burnside's plan on condition that he move rapidly, and it was put immediately in the way of execution. But every step in this unhappy campaign went wrong from the very beginning. General Halleck and General Burnside seemed never fully to understand each other. General Halleck says in his report that Burnside was not expected to move to Falmouth, but to cross his army by the fords of the upper Rappahannock and then move down and seize the heights south of Fredericksburg. He was slow in beginning the movement, and when he arrived on the north bank of the river he found that the pontoons, by which he had expected to cross, had not arrived, but that Lee and his army had. Sumner had got there a few days in advance, and had asked permission of Burnside to cross and take the heights which afterwards proved so deadly to our troops. This permission was refused. Hooker, in turn, had asked leave to cross his corps at one of the upper forts to come in upon the left flank of Lee, but this proposition was also declined. If Burnside had been able to cross the river on the day he arrived at Falmouth, he might still have been in time to occupy the important position opposite him without loss, for it was only that day that Longstreet's corps was put in motion towards Fredericksburg, and it was a week later before Jackson was ordered to join him there. But the pontoons had not arrived, and an acrimonious controversy, covering hundreds of pages of the official records, arose as to the responsibility for this failure. It is a controversy in which, as it seems to us, no candid reader of the records can take sides. Neither General Burnside, nor those staff officers specially charged with the duty, nor General Halleck, nor the engineer officers in whose jurisdiction the business lay, paid sufficient prompt and continuous attention to it. Each naturally endeavors to throw the blame on the others, but there was not a man in connection with the affair who acted with the promptness and energy required. The bridge trains did not arrive until the afternoon of the 25th of November, and it was not until the 10th of December that General Burnside was ready for the perilous enterprise of crossing the Rappahannock. The President visited the Army on the 27th of November, and had a long conversation with Burnside with regard to his campaign. Burnside told Mr. Lincoln that he had all the men he wanted, that he could not handle a greater number to advantage, that he thought he could cross the river and drive the enemy away, though it was somewhat risky. The President returned to his steamer, and on the way to Washington wrote a letter to Halleck detailing the above conversation with Burnside, and going on to say, I wish the case to stand more favorably than this in two respects. First, I wish his crossing of the river to be nearly free from risk, and secondly, I wish the enemy to be prevented from falling back, accumulating strength as he goes into his entrenchments at Richmond. He then proposed a plan of campaign of which the main features were these. Burnside was to remain for the present at Falmouth, to occupy the south bank of the Rappahannock about Port Royal with the strong force, say 25,000 men, 
an equal force to be placed on the north bank of the Pam Monkey, as high as up as it could be protected by gunboats. When all was ready, Burnside to cross the Rappahannock and the two auxiliary armies to march simultaneously, the force from Port Royal upon Lee's right flank, while that from the Pamunkey could hold or destroy the roads and bridges in his rear. Such a movement, if successful, would be destructive of Lee's army, while, if it failed, the retreat to the support of the gunboats would always be practicable. This plan was rejected by both Halleck and Burnside on the ground that the force on the Pamunkey could not be raised and put in position without too much waste of time. In the meantime, the enemy had not lost a day. Lee's entire army was now concentrated at Fredericksburg, and for several miles above and below. General Longstreet on the left, holding the heights immediately in the rear of the city, while Jackson's corps was stationed on the crest of the hills below, the two commands covering the entire range of heights from above the city to the Richmond Railroad. Beyond Jackson, Stuart, with his cavalry and the horse artillery, occupied the plain to the river. The Confederates had thrown up formidable earthworks and planted batteries at every advantageous point. The whole line of hills had become one great fortress manned by the veteran soldiers of the Army of Virginia, under the three ablest commanders of the South. At the time that General Burnside resolved to cross, his plan of battle was at best vague and confused. He had at first intended to cross the river some fourteen miles below the city, but at the last moment finding that the enemy had prepared to resist him at that point, he changed his mind and concluded to throw his bridges across to the town of Fredericksburg and to consult the Confederate position in front. It was a bold determination, but all the credit that is to be given to General Burnside for his unquestioned bravery must be taken from that which is to be awarded to his discretion. It was with utter amazement, mingled with satisfaction, that the Confederates, in the safe shelter of their impregnable works, watched the Army of the Potomac moving across the Rappahannock to the attack. General Burnside's army had been divided, at his request, into three grand divisions. Sumner commanded the right, Franklin the left, and Hooker was held in reserve. The duty which Burnside says he expected of Franklin was to attack the right wing of the Confederate army posted upon the hills below the town, and to gain the crest of these hills, which would give him access to the newly made road which led in the rear of all the rebel works. Sumner, after the attack of Franklin had been fully developed, was to move directly out upon two roads which led through the town, and storm the heights behind the city. The troops began crossing at dawn on the 11th of December. The building of the bridges proceeded but slowly at first on account of the harassing fire of the enemy, but a body of troops sent over in the pontoons themselves charged upon their assailants in the town and quickly cleared the ground. The bridges were then at once completed, and the army passed over without loss. By the night of the twelfth the troops were all in position, and Burnside visited the different commands to decide upon his final orders for the next day. He must have been in some confusion and trouble of mind, being even then not unconscious of a want of sympathy and confidence between himself and his leading generals. It is probably due to this fact that his orders to Franklin were so lacking in definiteness that that general passed the night, as he said, in sleepless anxiety, not precisely knowing what was expected of him the next day, and it was not until half-past seven o'clock in the morning of the 13th 
that General James A. Hardy arrived at Franklin's headquarters with a program for the battle. Even then the vagueness had not disappeared from General Burnside's intentions. Instead of an order to assault the heights in front of him with the entire force at his disposition, General Burnside merely directed Franklin to keep your whole command in position for a rapid movement down the old Richmond Road, and you will send out at once a division, at least, to pass below Smithfield, to seize, if possible, the heights near Captain Hamilton's, taking care to keep it well supported and its line of retreat open. Upon these ambiguous orders, Franklin fought all day, sending in at first Meade's division, and following it up successively with five others, until more than a whole army corps was engaged in a fierce and sanguinary battle. Meade did all that any one could have done. He made a brilliant and resolute charge, penetrating the line of A. P. Hill's division, surprising the line in rear, and putting it to rout, capturing three hundred prisoners and several stands of colors. But the bravest of men cannot long hold his hand in the flames, and Meade, exposed to a galling fire in front and on both flanks, was soon compelled to retire. The reinforcements which Franklin sent him checked the pursuit of the enemy, but although the fight raged on the left all day, the point which Meade reached in the morning was never regained. General Franklin always insisted that General Burnside, the night before, had not favored his proposition to attack on the left in force, and that he understood the movement ordered on the morning of the 13th was to be merely a strong reconnaissance, and that he remained under that impression until a later hour of the day, when Burnside sent an aide-de-camp to order an advance on the heights in front of him, of movement which then seemed to him impracticable. Burnside, on the contrary, always contended that Franklin had not done his full duty, and the Committee on the Conduct of War took the same ground in their report. About eleven o'clock, General Sumner was ordered to push his troops out through the town and attack the heights in the rear. Although General Burnside had some intimation of the extent of the Confederate works, yet for lack of proper reconnaissances, neither he nor any of his officers had any conception of their real strength, so that Sumner's corps, as they pushed out under the gray wintry skies over the so-called telegraph and plank roads in high hopes of carrying the enemy's line, were merely going to certain slaughter unrelieved by any possibility of success. The roads they were following brought them directly to a sharp eminence surrounded by the high ground of an estate known as Mary's. Its eastern boundary was itself a fortification, consisting of a road partly sunken running north and south. On the side of the road towards the town was a stone wall four feet high. On the side towards Mary's, a similar wall supporting the base of the hill. Both sides of the road had been reinforced and fortified by the Confederate engineers and artillerists. The whole declivity was one bristling mass of cannon and of muskets, served by stout-hearted soldiers, waiting silently in the grimmest joy a soldier ever knows, that of seeing his enemy approach him, and in his power. After the lapse of twenty years the mind shrinks and sickens at the task of describing the carnage of that day. Sumner sent forward the divisions of French and Hannock as his storming column. They marched some seventeen hundred yards, absolutely without shelter, under a withering fire. When they came within assaulting distance, there were not enough of them left to assault. Hannock's division lost two thousand men, and French's twelve hundred. 
some of the men fell within twenty-five paces of the stone wall. Sturgis's division exhibited the same bravery and shared the same fate. General Carroll next came up, and then Griffin, pushing their lines to within a few yards of the death-dealing hill, and then falling back without result. Hooker at last was ordered to take what was left of his troops, the rest having previously been sent in other directions, and attack these impregnable heights. There was probably no man in the army whose appetite for fighting was less questionable than Hooker's. But it is entirely to his credit that when he looked at the position he was ordered to assault, he sent an aide-de-camp to General Burnside to advise him not to attack at that place. Burnside, who by this time had reached a dangerous point of excitement, reiterated the order to attack. Then, fighting Joe Hooker, put spurs to his horse and rode to headquarters, and there, for the first and last time in his life, begged that his troops might not be ordered to destruction. General Burnside still insisted upon his orders, and Hooker, with a final protest, went back to his devoted column. It suited General Burnside afterwards to think that this protesting attitude of Hooker's diminished the vigor of his attack, but there was no foundation for such a belief. No braver or more hopeless assault was ever made. Hooker accompanied in person his soldiers of the Fifth Corps under General Butterfield. The division commanders were Griffin, Sykes, and Humphreys. All distinguished themselves equally for bravery and good conduct. The final charge of Humphreys' division was one of the most remarkable incidents of the war. He commanded two brigades, about 4,500 strong. They were mostly fresh troops who had never been in battle before. As they advanced to the front, the officers were greatly embarrassed by the number of soldiers whom they found lying on their faces, unable to resist the murderous fire. A part of Humphrey's division at once followed the example of these troops, and, lying down, began firing at the rebel infantry some two hundred yards in advance. General Humphreys, who had no superior in that army in ability or bravery, seeing that nothing could be done by musketry fire against the rebel position, determined as a last resort to try to charge with the bayonet. By the personal exertions of himself and his staff, he induced his command to cease firing and formed them for a charge. He gave orders to pay no attention to the men lying on the ground, but to run over them, and to stop for nothing till they had crossed bayonets with the enemy. He then ordered the officers to the front. Tyler's brigade, led by Tyler and Humphreys, marched with a cheer over the ground under the heaviest fire of the day. The stone wall, says Humphreys in his report, was a sheet of flame that enveloped the head and flanks of the column. Officers and men were falling rapidly, and the head of the column was at length brought to a stand when close up to the wall. Up to this time not a shot had been fired by the column, but now some firing began. It lasted but a minute when, in spite of all our efforts, the column turned and began to retire slowly. At the end of this magnificent, though disastrous, charge, only one member of Humphrey's staff was left mounted, and his horse had three wounds. The general had two horses killed under him, yet so effective was the indomitable spirit of Humphrey's upon his men that the meager remnants of them retired, slowly and in good order, singing and hurrahing. He had lost in a few minutes 1,019 men. As Humphreys led back his undaunted soldiers from the fight, it was growing dark. Hooker concludes his story by the grim remark, 
finding I had lost as many men as my orders required me to lose, I suspended the attack. General Burnside passed the greater part of the night among the officers and men of the right wing. It was a cheerless promenade, utterly devoid of comfort or encouragement. In the morning, unrefreshed by sleep or any other source of cheer, he had to decide upon his course for the day. Whatever else he may have lacked, he did not lack bravery. Perhaps we might use a stronger word to describe his state of mind on that gloomy morning of the 14th. His first orders breathed the spirit akin to desperation. He directed General Sumner to order the Ninth Army Corps to form in column of attack by regiments. These were his household troops. He had led them to victory before. He considered that they would be faithful to him, though all the world besides abandoned him. He determined to lead them in person against those fatal heights where the whole right wing of the army had been shattered the previous day. But before the hour when the column was to have started, General Sumner came to him. The orders he had received dismayed even that optimistic veteran, who always rejoiced in the turmoil of battle when there was anything like a chance for his side. He said, General, I hope you will desist from this attack. I do not know of any general officer who approves of it, and I think it will prove disastrous to the army. Advice like this, from one so hardy and sanguine as Sumner, naturally affected Burnside. He kept his column of attack formed, but called his division and corps commanders into consultation. They were unanimous against him. He then crossed the river and consulted the officers on the other side, with the same result. He next asked Franklin's opinion, which was the same. He would not at once yield his resolution, and dallied with it all that day and the greater part of the next. But on the evening of the 15th he resolved to withdraw his troops to Falmouth, and in the night, under cover of the darkness and a driving storm, this was successfully accomplished. And on the 16th General Lee, who had been anxiously expecting another attack, telegraphed to Richmond. As far as can be ascertained this stormy morning, the enemy has disappeared in our immediate front and has recrossed the Rappahannock. I presume he is meditating a passage at some other point. It was General Lee's impression that another crossing would immediately be made at some distance below Fredericksburg, and he took his measures accordingly. He wrote to Richmond, Should the enemy cross at Port Royal in force before I can get this army in possession to meet him, I think it more advantageous to retire to the Annas and give battle than on the banks of the Rappahannock. My design was to have done so in the first instance. This greatest of Lee's victories was therefore an accident, flung into his hands by the fortunes of war. Terrible as was this defeat, and directly chargeable as it was to the heirs of the general in command, it is a remarkable proof of the sterling worth of his personal character that it did not materially injure him in the public estimation. His conduct after the fight was in striking contrast to that of his predecessor. Instead of throwing upon the government the blame of his disaster, as McClellan did on every occasion, in his report of the 17th of December, he assumed the entire responsibility. He gave generous praise to his officers and men. For the failure in the attack I am responsible, he said, as the extreme gallantry, courage, and endurance shown by them was never excelled and would have carried the points had it been possible. The fact that I decided to move from Warrenton on to this line rather than against the opinion of the President, Secretary, and yourself, General Halleck, and that you have left the whole management in my hands, 
without giving me orders, makes me the more responsible. I will add here that the movement was made earlier than you expected, and after the President, Secretary, and yourself requested me not to be in haste, for the reason that we were supplied much sooner by the different staff departments than was anticipated when I last saw you. This manly shouldering of the blame, which he felt was his own, went far in the mind of a generous people to redeem many errors of judgment. The President sent a kind and sympathetic dispatch to the army, in which he said, Although you were not successful, the attempt was not an error nor the failure other than accident. The courage with which you in an opened field maintained the contest against an entrenched foe, and the consummate skill and success with which you crossed and recrossed the river in the face of the enemy, show that you possess all the qualities of a great army, which will yet give victory to the cause of the country and of popular government. General Burnside received friendly and encouraging letters also from General Halleck and the Secretary of War. But the damage which he had received could not be healed by complimentary letters or general orders. That indefinable abstraction, which is called the morale of the army, had suffered a grievous hurt in those days of December. Every officer who had leave to come to Washington whispered a woeful story of disorganization and discouragement in the ears of his political friends. Even the cheery Sumner, when examined by a committee of Congress, while stoutly defending his chief, admitted, there was too much croaking in the army. Henry J. Raymond, who visited the camp at Fredericksburg about this time, records in his diary a sorry impression of the state of gloom and discouragement among the officers and soldiers. The colonel of a Michigan regiment in the course of conversation told him that the despondency of the officers and men was due mainly, in his opinion, to want of confidence in General Burnside. In reply to the question why they lacked confidence in him, the colonel answered, because he had no confidence in himself. That General Burnside had not only spoken of his incompetency, but had gone before the Congressional Committee and sworn to it. It was impossible to stop for a moment by a group of soldiers talking around the campfire, without hearing enough to show that the commanding general had lost the confidence of the rank and file of the army. Desertion prevailed to an alarming extent. The officers, who could not escape their duty in that easy fashion, began to send in their resignations, accompanying them in some instances with insolent expressions against the government for its conduct of the war. This smothered mutiny was not confined to the lower ranks. Even among general officers, there were to be heard the most dangerous outbursts of disrespect and discontent. The most indiscreet and outspoken of all was naturally General Hooker, whose words always readily escaped the fence of his teeth. The commanding general was incompetent. His movements were absurd. The president and government at Washington were imbecile. Nothing would go right till they had a dictator, and the sooner the better. In the midst of an army so ill at ease, commanded by generals so hostile to him, Burnside resolved to make another movement against the enemy. On the day after a gloomy Christmas, he ordered the entire command to prepare three days' rations, and all the staff departments to be ready with ten or twelve days' supplies. He intended to cross the river this time six or seven miles below Fredericksburg. In connection with this movement, he had organized a formidable cavalry expedition through Virginia, to break the communications of the enemy, and to join General Peck at Suffolk. He communicated his intentions to none but his staff. Just as the expedition was starting, he received a telegram from the President, saying, I have good reason for saying you must not make a general movement of the army without letting me know. 
The reason for this abrupt interference of the President in Burnside's plan is given in the report of the Committee on the Conduct of the War. On the evening of the 29th of December, Generals John Newton and John Cochran, having leave of absence to go to Washington, sought an interview with the President, and informed him that a forward movement was contemplated by General Burnside, and that the Army was in such a state of demoralization and distrust that such a movement would only result in great disaster. Though both these generals, when examined by the committee as to their conduct in the matter, earnestly disclaimed having said anything to Burnside's discredit, it is certain that their representations made a deep and painful impression upon the President. General Burnside at once went to Washington to ask for an explanation of the restraining dispatch, and the President told him frankly what he had heard, without, however, giving the names of his informants. General Burnside returned to his camp without any definite settlement of the interrupted campaign. It is hard to conceive a more difficult position than that which he now occupied. He felt that he ought to go forward, and yet that very movement was paralyzed by the distrust of those about him, and that he was not sufficiently sustained by the confidence of the government. To give an illustration of the way he was beset on every side, on the same day in which he received the President's dispatch, warning him against a forward movement, General Halleck telegraphed him that for the success of the operation of Dix and Foster, it would be necessary for him to occupy and press the enemy. On the same day also, General Meigs, one of the wisest heads in the army, wrote him in advance, saying, Every day weakens your army. Every good day lost is a golden opportunity in the career of our country. Lost forever. Exhaustion steals over the country. Confidence and hope are dying. It seems to me that the army should move bodily up the Rappahannock, cross the river, aim for a point on the railroad between the rebels and Richmond, and send forward cavalry and light troops to break up the road and intercept retreat. A long letter in this strain. The President had a keen and distressing sense of the needs of the situation. On the morning of the 1st of January, after a full conversation with General Burnside, feeling how gloomy was the outlook for the coming year, and deeply sympathizing with Burnside's painful embarrassment, he found time, even in the midst of the conventional festivities of New Year's Day, to write this letter to the General-in-Chief. General Burnside wishes to cross the Rappahannock with his army, but his Grand Division commanders all oppose the movement. If in such difficulty as this you do not help, you fail me precisely in the point for which I sought your assistance. You know what General Burnside's plan is, and it is my wish that you go with him to the ground, examine it as far as practicable, confer with those officers, getting their judgment, and ascertaining their temper. In a word, gather all the elements for forming a judgment of your own, and then tell General Burnside that you do approve, or that you do not approve, his plan. Your military skill is useless to me if you will not do this. This letter was handed to General Halleck by Stanton at the usual New Year's reception at the house of the Secretary of War. Halleck interpreted it, as he could hardly avoid doing, as containing a certain tone of criticism of himself, and of his conduct towards generals in the field. He therefore instantly requested to be relieved from his duties as General-in-Chief. While it was true that the President felt there was too much shrinking from legitimate responsibility on the part of General Halleck, he did not wish to relieve him of his office, nor to wound his feelings. He therefore withdrew his letter, writing upon it that he had done so because it was considered harsh by General Halleck, and the General-in-Chief withdrew his request to be relieved. General Burnside, after leaving the President on that unfestive New Year's morning, 
went back to his lodgings and wrote him a letter in which he said, The Secretary to War has not the confidence of the officers and soldiers, and I feel sure that he has not the confidence of the country. The same opinion applies with equal force in regards to General Halleck. It seems to be the universal opinion that the movements of the army have not been planned with a view to cooperation and mutual assistance. He then goes on to refer to his first attempt, and its failure, and his conviction that another movement should be made, but that he is not sustained in this by a single grand division commander in his army. Doubtless, he says, this difference of opinion between my general officers and myself results from a lack of confidence in me. In this case, it is highly necessary that this army should be commanded by some other officer to whom I will most cheerfully give way. It is my belief that I ought to retire to private life. If the President ever received this letter, he did not retain it. General Burnside said to the Committee of Congress that he expressed these same views verbally to the Secretary of War and the General-in-Chief, but this was contradicted by both these gentlemen. The correspondence of those days is full of misunderstandings, which may easily be accounted for by the perturbation of spirit in which General Burnside passed most of his time. On the 5th of January, General Burnside again wrote, asking the government to authorize another forward movement, to which Halleck replied, assenting in general terms, but still declining to give explicit directions. It will not do, he says, to keep your large army inactive. As you yourself admit, it devolves on you to decide upon the time, place, and character of the crossing which you may attempt. The President, on the 8th of January, endorsed this letter of Halleck's in the following words. I approve this letter. I deplore the want of concurrence with you in opinion by your general officers, but I do not see the remedy. Be cautious, and do not understand that the government or country is driving you. I do not yet see how I could profit by changing the command of the Army of the Potomac, and if I did, I should not wish to do it by accepting the resignation of your commission. Upon this, General Burnside again resolved to move on his own responsibility. This resolution resulted in the famous Mud March of the 21st of January. It was begun amid a throng of evil arguries. His immediate subordinates had protested against it with the greatest vehemence. They said flatly that it must fail, that the enemy were too strong, and our own troops not in a fighting mood. General Franklin, Mr. Raymond says, gave one ludicrous reason for not moving, that the New Jersey legislature had just elected a secessionist, named Wall, to the United States Senate, and the New Jersey troops in his division had therefore concluded that their state was opposed to the war. Hooker also protested. Woodbury of the engineers declared that the movement was impossible. Yet General Burnside went on in a sort of depressed and sullen obstinacy, giving his orders to his recusant commanders for this foredoomed enterprise. On the day set for his accomplishment, the elements conspired to fulfill the prophecies of Hooker and Franklin, and to make the march impossible. A cold, drizzling rain set in. The ground speedily became like a sea of glue, absolutely impracticable for wagons or artillery. Everything upon wheels sunk into the bottomless mud. It took twenty horses to start a single caisson. Hundreds of them died in harness, but still the general persisted. He ordered his cavalry to dismount and make pack-horses of their animals for carrying forage and light commissary stores to the front. But the rain persisted also, and it soon became a simple impossibility to go forward. The enemy, of course, got intelligence of the movement and when the Union pickets arrived at the river by Banks Ford, they heard, through the darkness on the other side, 
the chafing voices of their enemies offering to come over and help them build their bridges. Burnside himself, at last, acknowledged that the expedition had failed, and the army struggled and floundered through the wilderness of mud back to their camp. The march was made in high good humor, the soldiers laughing and joking at their ill luck with that comic brightness characteristic of Americans in difficult circumstances. Nevertheless, it could no longer be denied that General Burnside's usefulness as commander in the army was at an end. He felt that his position had become impossible if the officers in command under him were to remain. On the 23rd of January, he determined to make a final issue between himself and the incorrigible critics in his command. He prepared an order dismissing from the army General Joseph Hooker for unjust and unnecessary criticisms of the actions of his superior officers, as a man unfit to hold an important commission during a crisis like the present, when so much patience, charity, confidence, consideration, and patriotism are due from every soldier in the field. Dismissing General W. T. H. Brooks for complaining of the policy of the government, and for using language tending to demoralize his command, Generals Newton and Cochrane for their furtive visit to the President, and the fourth paragraph of this drastic order relieved from duty Generals Franklin, W. F. Smith, Samuel D. Sturgis, Edward Ferrero, John Cochrane, and Lieutenant Colonel J. H. Taylor. Armed with this order, and with his own letter of resignation, he asked for an audience with the President, and on the 24th placed before him the alternative of accepting one or the other. Mr. Lincoln saw there was no longer any time for adjournment or compromise. A commander who had lost the confidence of his soldiers could not regain it by dismissing a few of his generals. The experiment of placing General Burnside at the head of the principal army of the Union had failed. The only question was now as to the choice of his successor. There is no doubt that the public opinion pointed rather to Hooker than to anyone else. He was the most esteemed of all the generals of the Army of the Potomac, at least, and so soon after the ill success of Pope, the President was not inclined to risk the chances of bringing another general from the West. It is believed that he took no advice in regard to the matter. General Halleck says, The removal of General Burnside and appointment of General Hooker was the sole act of the President. Mr. Lincoln was not unaware of General Hooker's attitude towards Burnside and towards himself. His language had been in the highest degree improper and indiscreet. But, as in the case of McClellan, when he thought his services were of value, he employed him, and gave him his full support and confidence, after what would have seemed to most people his unpardonable conduct towards Pope and himself. So, in this crisis, believing that Hooker possessed in a great degree the confidence of the country and the soldiers, and that he had the capacity and energy to lead the army to success, he again took the full responsibility upon himself, and the next day informed General Burnside of his determination. Burnside replied that he was willing to accept that as the best solution of the problem, that no one would be happier than himself if General Hooker could lead that army to victory. He then again tendered his resignation, which the President refused to receive, but gave him leave of absence for thirty days, after which he placed him in command of the Department of the Ohio. Burnside took leave of the army in a manly and chivalrous order commending the brave and skillful general who was to succeed him to that cordial support and cooperation, which, it must be admitted, he had himself hardly received. As Generals Sumner and Franklin were both of higher rank than Hooker, 
They were relieved from service in the Army of the Potomac, and soon afterwards assigned to other commands, the one in the west, the other on the southern coast. Franklin's undoubtable talents never again had an opportunity for exercise in a field worthy of them. His subsequent career suffered from the severe judgment passed upon him by the Committee on the Conduct of the War, and from the controversies which grew out of it. Sumner never assumed his new command. He died at Syracuse, New York, on the 21st of March, universally respected and beloved by all who were able to appreciate his noble qualities, his valor, and his patriotism. He was the finest type the army possessed of the old-fashioned soldier, the quick eye, the strong arm, the unquestioning spirit of loyal obedience, the simple heart that knew not a pulse of fear or of hesitation, that beat only for his friends, his flag, and his God. End of chapter 10